Welcome to Pantasocracy, and this is your host, Ms. Panty Bliss. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Thank you very much, gorgeous people. And I'm glad to see you all felt so comfortable coming along to use us today that you felt you could wear any old crap. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. You all look beautiful. And in fact, I've uh, even pulled on a new frock myself for the occasion. And listeners in Radio Land don't even need to take my word for how cute I look because they can check it out online. And joining me today for our small but perfectly formed studio audience in our Pantasocracy parlor, we have five equally splendid looking guests. There are some bright minds, um, some gifted writers, and at least one fabulous voice, but I won't tell you which is which. First, we have a Belfast teacher and writer, Wendy Erskine, whose debut short story collection of a fractured post-piece Northern Ireland sweet home has been wooing readers and reviewers. Please welcome Wendy. Also joining us is a, a filmmaker, Sinead O'Shea, whose documentary, A Mother Brings Her Son to Be Shot, takes us inside one of those dark fractures in a dairy community. Please welcome Sinead. <laughs> then we have a young man about town, Dean Van Nguyen, who writes winningly of rap music, among other things, and whose dad was one of the Vietnamese boat people, you know, refugees from the Vietnam War, who came here to Ireland in the late 70s. Thank you for being here, Dean! And then we have a man of law and human rights. He's a traveller activist. He was born in a caravan and lived on campsites until his family settled in Navan, I think, which seems unfortunate. Anyway, lovely to have you with us, David Joyce. And finalement, but by no means least, as they say, the voice that I promise you, she is a singer and a musician extraordinaire, a woman that I know very well, because for the last few years we have shared dressing rooms and hotels and theatre spaces and bottles of whiskey and colds and throat lozenges and stretching exercises all over the world as we toured with the show Riot. So please welcome Alma Keller. As she's going by these days, her stage persona looks Alma. But before we get around to meeting our guests properly, I want to tell you a story. One summer in the mid-1970s, when I was about seven or eight, a bus arrived in Ballinrobe, County Mayo. Now, its arrival had been discussed with much excitement for weeks beforehand, anticipated. But the excitement was tinged with something else. I didn't have the right vocabulary at the time to name it, but it was a kind of sadness or perhaps trepidation. And the fact that the adults, you know, Mammy, Mrs. Galvin, Sister Rosario, seemed determined to pretend it wasn't there at all and talked about the imminent arrival of the bus with a jollity that even me and Dee Biggins from across the road could tell was a bit forced, well, made it all the more curious. Because after all, it was a bus full of kids, you know, like us, coming for a holiday in Ballinrobe. And that was exciting because nobody came for holidays in Ballinrobe County Mayo, you know, <laughs> except for the occasional cousin or a granny. Something in me sensed, though, that it was a delicate subject. So with all the subtlety a seven or eight-year-old could muster, I asked my mammy about it. Mammy, you know the bus children coming to stay with us? Are they weird? <laughs> no she assured me. They aren't weird. They were, she told me, from Derry in Northern Ireland, a place I only knew from the telly. It was always on the telly. I'd never been there, but I didn't like it. 
it was kind of scary. It was always exploding or smoking after exploding, and people with hard accents were always shouting or upset. Well, except for Diana. She was lovely, but she left there and went to Eurovision, so I don't think she liked it much either. Mammy said the children were coming to Ballinrobe and other towns to give them a break from the troubles and looked at me as if I was supposed to know what she meant. We all walked up to Corn Market to welcome the bus and the bus children. There was a little cheer when the bus appeared and lots of waving as it pulled up and then the bus kids got off and they looked almost like us and not weird. But they did look a little weird. I mean, just a little though, their clothes were a bit different and they looked awkward and shy. And all the mammies were hugging them and asking them questions about the long journey. And when they answered, well, they totally did have weird accents. <laughs> Two girls, sisters, came to stay with us in our house. They were nice, like Dana. <laughs> when we got home, we showed them where they were going to be sleeping, and mammy made tea. And then the older girl dug in her suitcase and pulled out a present for mammy, which their mammy had sent down with them to say thank you. And we all watched as my mammy made a big show of saying, oh, thank you, and unwrapping it with great care until a moment later, my nice, polite mammy, who had been partly raised in England and whose childhood best friend we called Auntie and whose very English family we would visit on their very Protestant farm in deepest Cheshire and eat their deliciously crumbly Protestant cheese and drink their tingly homemade British cider. <laughs> well... My mammy was now holding a rubber bullet on a display stand and with the words Bloody Sunday 1972 printed along its metal casing. I didn't know what that meant exactly, but I knew it was a giant bullet and that was very exciting. But I also knew my mammy and that's why I could tell that there was something funny about her wide-eyed delight and her over-effusive thank yous and the big show of putting it on the dresser in the living room, which was weird. I didn't actually visit Northern Ireland myself till I was 17. I was considering going to our college in Belfast, and I went up on a day trip, you know, laden down with my big portfolio to see the college and do the admissions interview. The day started disappointingly, for which I blame Captain Kirk. <laughs> you know, he and his mission to boldly go where no man has gone before set aboard, you know, the Starship Enterprise. Well, it set up impossibly high expectations for its namesake, the Enterprise, the train to Belfast from Connolly Station. <laughs> Though, in a way, it did feel to me as if this unremarkable train was boldly taking me to another world, or perhaps more accurately, anyway, to a parallel world, you know, which seemed the same at first glance, but in which things were just slightly off. I mean, it looked like Ireland, and had names like Ireland, and there was Tato and Weather and Light, just like Ireland, but... The train station floor was rubber, like in a train station in London. And the money was different, and the taxis were black, and the radio they played in the taxis were the BBC, and the bread was called Veda. <laughs> and on the train home, a polite but disinterested soldier got on and asked to see my passport and poked my portfolio, which was weird. I was 30 before I really got to know Belfast. Every Thursday for a few years, myself and my friend Veda would take the non-Starship Enterprise to Belfast uh, to do a regular gig at Belfast's big gay club, the Kremlin. By then, thanks to the Good Friday Agreement, the border had become invisible and no one asked for ID and nobody poked our bags. And every week, the little weirdnesses, well, they lost their weirdness by familiarity and it started to feel ordinary, or mostly ordinary anyway, because there were always other little weirdnesses to discover. Once, while chatting to a barman in the club we worked in, he said he came from a mixed marriage. And I thought, well, he must have been adopted because he didn't look mixed race to me. <laughs> 
And even in the gay bars, which had always been mixed, you know, people still avoided giving their last names or saying what part of the city they came from, and definitely not the school they went to. And they all thought Vader was named after a malt bread. <laughs> the thing about the past is that it's never actually in the past. The past doesn't just pass by, it lingers in the present. It passes by, but trails tendrils behind it that slip and whisk through the present, often unnoticed, but occasionally getting tangled in today. And like a poltergeist, it can shift or push or knock things over, sometimes suddenly. It leaves grooves that we are hardly aware of until we trip in one. And sometimes we do forget. We forget so entirely that we stumble into a groove we once knew well, but now we don't even recognize it. And before we know what's happened, we're back where we've already been. Before you know it, there's a disinterested soldier poking your bag, and it doesn't seem weird at all. It seems all too familiar. Thank you. When young, I want to start with you for two reasons. The first being, I feel like in a parallel world, I am you. Because, well, I feel like if I was a straight woman from Belfast, I'd want to be you because, well, for starters, we're both 50. Correct, And yes. we both look fucking amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and also, in reading all the interviews with you, so many times, that, oh my God, that is just so like me. Like you said about your debut book, which has gotten these incredible reviews. And I don't know how many people here have read it. If you haven't, you absolutely should. And it's short stories, which I absolutely adore. And it's gotten these incredible reviews and people have said such big things about it. And Paul Muldoon said it was the greatest thing published in the last few years or something. And you said in one interview, you know, Paul Muldoon says it's the greatest thing he's read and then I have to wash the dishes. <laughs> <laughs> that is what, exactly what I say about being told I was HIV positive. I was like, okay, fine, I'm dying, but some, and I've got to buy bin bags, you know? And she has an aga in her kitchen yes. that isn't used and she uses it to keep bags of crisps in. And I like, that is totally me. And, and you say you don't go really go out much, but you like, you like your Friday night and she sits in and drinks tequila and orange and eats and nuts. And that that is basically my life. <laughs> so, hi, I feel like I know hi, you it's forever. Lovely to meet you. But I'm also coming to you, obviously, because you know very well things that were weird to me when I first started going to Belfast. And your book is infused with all of those things. What is that to you? Like, when you come down here? Well, whenever I was younger, my, my dad used to work down here quite a lot of the time. And so we loved it because he brought back on a Friday sweets from the south. Mint and they were, crisps. Yes, and they were... They oh. don't have mint crisps and they buy them all in the shop near Connolly Station and I hate you for it. And it was like, it seemed like a really quite exotic and exciting place because there were all these sweets that we just never, ever got. And we would have come on holiday here as well. So it had been seen as an exciting type of a place to go to, that Dublin was a proper city compared to where we were in... Uh, in Belfast. And you also, in the book, you mentioned the names thing, which I always find so funny in Belfast. Everyone wants to know your name so they can place you. Absolutely. It's like a total shortcut. People try the name thing, and then, as you say, the school, which will place people even more um, specifically. Yeah. Yeah, because you're East Belfast. I'm East Belfast, yes. So what do people deduce about you if they find out you're from East Belfast? Well, I suppose if people, they'll say, um, oh, have you recently moved there? And so, you know, <laughs> are you part part of a, a, a new wave of people that have moved to the area. Mm. And there would, I suppose with East Belfast nowadays, there, there would be more of a range of people there. There would probably be more ethnic diversity than there used to be. Yeah. But the common assumption would be that people living in East Belfast, traditionally quite a, a Protestant, quite a working class mm. environment. 
And you're an Erskine. And I'm an Erskine, I mean, you might yes. as well be waving your Union Jack. Absolutely. <laughs> and Wendy, of course. And Wendy, yes. You are marked for life. Yes. yes. <laughs> I'm trying to come over to you, Sinead, because you are not from Northern Ireland, and yet you spent so much time there, uh, five years, living with the family there, essentially. Because your documentary, uh, Mother Brings Her Son to Be Shot, for the people who don't really know, just um, give them the outline. Well, um, the starting point to this film is a mother who decided to bring her teenage son to be shot. She'd been told by local gunmen that he either had to be brought to be shot or face worse consequences. And he had been accused of drug dealing. And so she and her son and the shooters are all part of this community within Derry, who I suppose you could say are quite autonomous. And Mm. they don't accept the police or the UK government. They haven't really accepted the Good Friday Agreement so in, in a way, you know, you could say they're still at war and yeah. they resolve conflicts themselves. So they have a like a local community centre which mediates in local disputes. But it's also brilliantly entertaining because of the people in it. Tell us about Kevin Barry. So Kevin Barry is the guy who got shot. Uh, it's his little brother. So he's 11 at the start of the film. And so you could argue he's not really supposed to be in the film it's the film is about his big brother really mm. but Kevin Barry just was so funny and actually in a way he's kind of the spirit of the film because yeah. and the spirit of that community and he's very clever and he's very performative but you know he's quite vulnerable and I suppose you could argue that he's got quite a few issues. Well, there's a darkness there, isn't there? Yeah, like I mean, when he shows you the weapons and all. I actually thought that was quite innocuous initially. I just thought he was being funny. But it but is interesting, though, isn't it? Because when, when we're putting these shows together, you know, we like to think about what might you know, connect guests well. And, and today, a lot of it is about identity. Yeah. And it's a community that is entirely formed around... Uh, their their identity of where they're from and what their religious background is and yeah their though they're not r- that religious actually like you see a few crosses but I don't think I ever heard of anyone going to mass yeah, but any, culturally but, no no yeah, absolutely yeah. no I'm just saying that as a point of interest yes. like this whole fight is supposed to be about religion and yeah yes, I yes, never yes. saw the slightest trace you went up there really knowing yeah. very little <laughs> yeah. like you have been a journalist and Al Jazeera and all that but it's not like you know that was your beat yeah I I don't know I mean God maybe a combination of personal ambition like I thought it was a good story and I thought Mm. I could turn it into a feature documentary I ended up spending five years there and I didn't expect to do that it was just they were very compelling and they're very interesting and also they kept disappearing so then I'd have to keep going back and like finding out what happened Um, and they were disappearing because their lives are chaotic or because they were being warned off or I mean I think Actually, the sad truth is I just wasn't a very big priority for the yeah. long time. I think they had bigger fish to fry. <laughs> I, mean, I want to come back and talk about them more because they're so fascinating. But one of the other very dark things in a way about it, especially in the current context, is Kevin Barry, he wants the troubles back. Yeah, I know. It's See, he, he doesn't, he doesn't, because he doesn't remember the troubles. He mm. wasn't born when the troubles were happening. And yep. so it is kind of like the Brexiteers, you know. He has this nostalgic vision of this time mm. which he hasn't experienced. And it's a time when you could be a hero and when you had some purpose. Because it is actually very tough within that community. Yeah. You know, the unemployment is really high and drug abuse is very common. And, you know, it does feel a bit hopeless and it is very hard to feel like you have purpose. So, you know, I think that's why he says he wants the troubles back. It seems exciting. It seems him. exciting and he'd have a specific role, whereas now he's just kind of going, okay, how do I 
identify now within yeah. this community and so they keep telling stories about the troubles and they're they're so embellished at this yeah. point like they've just really escalated romanticized it all it's completely romanticized um he means it to mm. an extent but i don't know if he really would like to live mm. in the troubles again i'm not sure any of them would yeah and when do you have things changed that much in some respects, yeah. I mean, you know, we've now got our cathedral quarter, which is the one cool street. So, uh, you You're know... You're doing it a disservice. Uh, well, there's it more is, than one street. There, well, there's uh, two, two or three. Um, it is. I mean, there's all sorts of things. And I mean, I got a 16-year-old daughter and her experience, I think, of being 16 in Belfast is light years away from mine would have been in the 80s. But at the same time, you're looking at a place where people still have segregated housing, mm-hmm. where there's still segregated education, yeah. where there's the highest rate of suicide in the in the UK. So this is still a place with mm. major issues and trauma. And of course, a lot of those issues and trauma come out of the idea of identity and Dean, you're an interesting uh, test case for mm-hmm. our subject. So your father um, came here in the 70s from Vietnam and he married a woman from Sligo, who I assume your, your mother was a bit of a rebel type because not every girl from Sligo in 1970 is, is going to be, start dating the Vietnamese um, immigrant. And so, so you are what they wouldn't in Belfast call <laughs> from a, a mixed marriage. And what you said a number of times is that you pass as white. And so in Ireland that in some way, well, it changes your experience of Ireland in comparison to somebody else who might not pass as white. Oh, yeah, well, for sure it has affected my experience as mm. someone who, with white privilege, for sure. Yeah. I suppose you can, you can see it more through that lens because, like, I have half-brothers who, uh, they live in London, but they're mm-hmm. fully Vietnamese, so they have a, like, a totally different experience. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, even the, almost the definition of white privilege would be, I, I know people who are the same makeup as me, say, yeah. who have one Irish parent, one Vietnamese parent, and for whatever reason, they just happen to look primarily Asian. Yeah. And, you know, they would receive, you know, racial abuse on the streets, mm. um, all sorts of different experiences, which I don't, except for online. That's the only time I get <laughs> oh, racial abuse because of the surname. And because the reason I, that resonates with me, actually, is because, you know, passing is mm-hmm. an idea that I'm very familiar with. Because, first of all, certainly in the past, there's a time whenever a gay person would, would somehow equate homophobia with something like racism or something, somebody would always say, yes, but you can, you can pretend to be straight, you know, as if that made us, you know, okay in a way or something. Then in the trans community, it can be a matter of life and death, whether you're the kind of trans person who can pass as a biological woman in the street as against the kind who can't. So, you know, this idea of passing as something else, but sometimes it's necessary or at least uh, makes life easier in some ways. Do you feel guilty about it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, you're uncomfortable with the, the, the concept of it because for me, yes. it's like, personally, I identify as much with my Vietnamese side as my mm. Irish side. You know, I had grew up with exposure to equal cultures, but yep. you're coming up in that predominantly Irish white society. Mm. But on the guilt thing, yeah, I do sometimes feel guilty that I, you know, that I do experience so many privileges that other people don't. I don't think anybody should feel guilty for, of course, who they are. Yes, or... yes. Because your f- father moved to Sligo, or he was placed in Sligo. Or... Uh, so he came over in 1979, so he was one of the original boat people yeah. from Vietnam. So at the time, I think like the US took maybe 100,000, Britain took maybe 10, 20,000, something like that. Ireland's 1979, they took 212. Yes, and we thought we were brilliant. <laughs> uh, so he, they first ended up living in Blanchetown Hospital, which 
something I suppose that would have been akin to direct provision, except it lasted a couple of months and not yeah. forever. Yeah. So then he yeah he got sent out to Sligo. They kind of got dispersed around the country, and I say that's where he met he met my mother, who um, as you say had a very rebellious spirit and and and, and sadly your, your your mother died very young from breast, breast cancer. Yeah, yeah, she was forty eight. Yeah. Yeah. About a few years ago. So David, I want to talk to you because there's a connection here too. So you're from a traveler family, and your dad settled the family. When you were what age? I, I don't know. I use the word settlement. And certainly, uh, in, in what people could perceive to be settlement. I mean, we, mm. yeah, we we first moved into a house when I was twelve, thirteen. Uh, I sorry, think. I'm, I'm interested in that. You 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 avoid the word settle or settling. Uh, why? Because I don't think my dad ever settled. Oh, well, <laughs> yes, your dad. Uh, yes, forget that. Yeah, we lived as I said. I grew up in in, in as you said earlier on. I grew up in Avon. I think it was about um, twelve or thirteen at the time, but. When you say my dad said, like they lived in it for five years, and then my parents moved off again. Uh, yeah. I stayed around, and that was because your dad just couldn't. Yeah, he didn't like the bricks and mortar. I think mm. he he was he, he didn't move very far most times, but he, he liked to move. He liked to yeah. kind of travel, and uh, you know, um, I mean, I stayed on and moved into an apprenticeship at the time. So you know, some mm. people like kids run away from their parents. I think my parents ran away from me and left me behind. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but that's what happened. <laughs> but yeah, no, I don't use the word settle because I think it's just a, just a kind of a. Settle traveler, what's that? You know, I, yeah. I use the term traveler, but I was interested in your, in your concept of, of mm-hmm. what I would describe as hiding in plain view. You said yeah. talk about passing, and obviously, travelers are Irish, and you know, yeah. with surnames, Irish surnames, are, and you know, we can pass and, and do pass all of the mm-hmm. time. And I think for some, for me, that's that's an issue with I think a lot of younger travelers is that they, they are hiding in plain view, yeah, and a lot with achievement as well, who have achieved things, and that achievement being hidden then leaves people with a very narrow perception of who the traveler community are, yes, and, and we saw that quite recently I suppose and certainly we saw it during the presidential elections mm. when, when the stereotype of the traveller was somebody who trespassed on your land yeah. and didn't pay rent or something you know and you're thinking I don't recognise that stereotype yeah. you know that, so there is an issue I think mm. in the community of passing and as hiding in plain view yeah and what's interesting to me and sort of I, when I, you know, Dean's dad everybody looks at, would have looked at Dean's dad and said oh he's Vietnamese and they would label him in, in this way and it doesn't really matter what happens after that, they've decided that he's of a culture. Whereas in, in your case, you know, Irish people you know, are, are labeling you as, an, as a culture because they are putting all these bad things on you. But then when you try to sort of claim an identity or an, a distinct I- identity, they don't really believe you because they'll say, well, sure, you're just me in a, in a caravan behaving badly. I mean, you know, that's how, how they, they paint it. There's a pick and choosing about it, I, I think, from society at large. When it suits them, you're just one of us. When it doesn't suit them, you're different. Very much so. I mean, that is something that you constantly get. And I think you've, you've summed it up quite, quite rightly there. You know, that there's some story about a member of the traveller community has mm. done something or has, has engaged in some atrocious act. You know, it's, it's them. You know, they're travellers yeah. and, and they're not Irish. You know, that's, that's kind of a subculture. They just do those things, you know. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, when the community, as you say yourself, when the travellers are claimed that and say, you know, we are... A, vibrant community we have yeah. a culture we have so we have a history we've been part of ireland for for generation for centuries we're told no we're not you know you know yeah. but yeah you still have a aggressive sort of section of irish society then you know has this sort of historical notion of ireland being some sort of homogenous yeah. community or this group yeah. and, and travelers and, have been just one of them you know and, and it's funny because um people often find themselves in that their identities are called into question by other members of their own community because sometimes 
both travellers and non-travellers would look at you and say, well, you can't really be a traveller because you're a barrister, you're a solicitor, you're, you're too well-educated in a way. Do you feel that keenly? Yeah, I do at times. And, and I suppose that's the point I was making. I'm, I'm not unique in the travel community. I mean, mm. There are other travellers who have quali- qualified lawyers. And as I said, you know, when I hear these sort of stereotypes, I don't recognise them. I and mean, I come yeah. from a family of, of eight. I mean, I have six sisters. You know, four of my sisters are graduates, you know. Yeah. I have two adult daughters. They're both graduates. Well, you know, so that, when, when I hear about travellers not being interested in education, not wanting to be educated, you know, I don't recognise that, that yeah. stereotype because certainly my family don't reflect that. Um, I'm from Ballinroe County, Mayo. It's a relatively large traveller population. Uh, we lived on the Bog Road and for many years we were the only settled family, excuse the expression. I sat, you know, shared school desk with, with traveller friends and to this very day, my 80, whatever your father, every Christmas day we drags us down to Nell's house because we have to go down with the box of roses and, you know, all this stuff. And um, I just assumed that was the same everywhere. And then I come to Dublin and meet people who literally never had a single conversation with the traveller. And they have all these wild ideas about them. No, well, uh, certainly, uh, traditionally, and, and I suppose, you know, travelling community has been quite a rural community. So, I mean, mm. I think in rural counties and, and areas, there have been. I mean, and again, travellers are not a homogenous group. I mean, yeah. they, they, they come from, from all over Ireland. I mean, and they identify, you know, as I identify as a Westmead man, primarily, yeah. which is, again, probably a little bit higher up the scale than being a mead man. But, I, you know, <laughs> that's what I am. Like, I do think travellers have, you know, have connections to local areas. I mean, yeah. I, I, what I always find peculiar is that travellers are somehow outsiders that, you know, communities have to accept them. And I mean, I, you know, to me, I'm Irish. You know, I'm part of the society. It's my society. I mean, I don't have to be acceptable of anybody in it. But yeah. I think you're right. I think in rural areas, certainly traditionally, the, the historical sort of connection between travellers probably and, and the settled community, particularly rural settled communities, there was an interdependency yeah. of some sort. And that yeah. has changed in the last 50 years. And, and there's been much more of a yeah. separation between the travel community and the settled community. Well, one other thing that's interesting to me uh, about travellers, but about a number of the stories here today, is the names thing. So um, Wendy's an Erskine, that marks her out. Dean here is at Van Nguyen. And now you are Joyce. And depending on what part of the country you're in, travellers are associated with different surnames. You know, I, I thought they were all called Ward and Joyce when I was growing up. And then I find out in other parts of the country, the local family name is something else. And Alma, Hi. who to me is Alma Keller, but to everyone else is Lux Alma now. But Alma is a sound mm. designer. So when you go to the theatre or something and some, there's a gunshot or a door closing or whatever, you know, she did that. But she's really a musician and she studied organ and she's an incredible singer and songwriter. Mm. And she has her own album out at the moment. And you can, the third single is about to be released. <laughs> Anyway, Alma has learned from drag queens because in order to separate the domestic Alma, the Alma who's married to the gentleman in the second row, the Alma who came from Kerry and then moved to Dublin and tried to be cool. Tried. (laughs) You've separated all of that out, but with a drag character, essentially. Yeah. Right. Totally. And I'm very, very happy to admit that it's kind of... First, when I knew I really wanted to make my own music, I kind of overshot slightly, I think. So I I initially was called the she, as in me, female, yes, but also I'm then a she. So like the Irish fairy people. Yeah. And it's lots and lots of makeup. So I did learn something from you, Panty. But no. Yeah, for me, some people will accuse me of hiding behind this fakery or this identity that isn't really mine. Mm. Whereas I say I'm not hiding I'm revealing who I really am. Exactly. And so, well, you are purposely creating this identity. Mm. But is that in order to hide the real Alma or to reveal the real Alma? It's to reveal. It's to facilitate what I have to say. And I think if you're standing and you're fierce and you want to be talking about fierce things, 
being strong and fierce and sparkly and look at me being fierce, yeah. it's a lot easier to say those things than being like, hi, I'm, I'm Alma, nice to meet you all. And now I'm going to be fierce and everyone's really surprised. You know, yeah. you're going to want that. So it's good to push, I feel for me anyway, currently it's good to push myself with what my presentation is, that it's yeah. not just a default kind of... Basically, you're trying to pass like somebody you know, more fabulous and stronger than you are when you're at home. Ouch. Well, but no, no, but that's not a bad thing. Cause that's, that's I wear my sparkles at home, doing. too. You know, we, part of, no, part of my yet. interest in this discussion is that there are the identities that are pushed onto us, mm. uh, traveler, you know, half-Vietnamese, Protestant, um, from Navin, um, <laughs> all of these things. And, and I always say about drag that, you know, this isn't a lie. This, this is who I am. And exactly. Now, Alma, you, you're not just here to uh, talk about makeup. You, you're here to sing and perform for us. Yes. So um, tell us about the first song you're going to do. Okay, so I'm going to start with a song called The Tomb, which was my first single. Yeah. I was saying earlier about Andina She, and so Irish mythology is real interest to me, and in particular, looking at the stories of Irish mythology through feminist lens and kind of shedding a lot of the male gaze-ness that's mm. in a lot of the stories. So, like, these are stories and myths that are hundreds and thousands and or thousands of years old, but a lot of them are written down by hermit monks who've <laughs> never really met a woman. So, <laughs> like, a lot of the women are either terrifying witches or yeah. damsels, and there's no in-between. And yet we're all, both of those things and everything in between, like, a lot of the female characters are at best mentioned in one line be like oh and then yeah she died but then back to the man with the sword yeah. so I'm I'm kind of writing the songs about like yeah but what she where where did she go you know and so you wouldn't necessarily know it to listen to them that that's what they're about yeah so this one's about a guy who tried to steal a cloak of immortality from the fairies oh yeah and it went really badly for him oh but so far it's going great for me yeah um <laughs> well let's have it Alma let's uh... look Salma Performing the tomb. He waits above the bay, below the surface, there lies his dream. He'll live beyond his years, they'll remember him, oh, they will. But at what cost? Tomb is a voice in the tomb is a voice. 
is a voice, it's your laughter. And all for what? And all for Is fading, lost in the roar. It pulls him down. Remember him, he is no more. In the tomb is a voice. In the tomb is a voice. As always, Alma, perfect. Thank you. <laughs> now, the songs, Alma, are about women and the male gaze and all of those things. And um, I'm going <laughs> to come over to you, Shania, because you and, of course, the women in film are still very underrepresented. Um, yeah, it's really disgraceful. And the numbers speak for themselves. It's not that all the women age 40 and up were just very untalented. <laughs> you know? yeah. And they just had to be a producer or an actress, you yeah. know, because that's how the film industry works. Because you know, you won an IFTA when you were very young. But then I think that maybe you feel that the industry kind of was like, because you were a woman in some ways. And that was part of the reason why you then went into current affairs and... Uh, London yeah, that, and Al Jazeera and whatever, you know. <laughs> I think I probably wasn't rationalising it as coherently at the time. But mm. I think in retrospect, yeah, I think I was kind of baffled. I was 23 or 24 and it just seemed like, well, I have something to offer somebody yeah. here. But I, I never felt that was reciprocated yeah. or that anyone else felt the same way. And actually, Ireland has definitely changed a lot in the last few years because... When I was in my 20s, when I went to London, just the difference was so stark. Now, when your stories very much focus on, uh, on women in, in particular, and the small women, if you know what I mean, that wasn't conscious, I assume, or, or was it? Sort of interested in people that are somehow midway. So not people that are in the gutter, in the utter depths mm -hmm. of despair, because there's a kind of a drama to that, but not at the same time people who are enormously successful because I'm just not interested in them. Yeah. But people who are just somewhere in the middle, stoically just trying to get on with life, trying to make a go of it, those are the sort of people I was interested in writing about, but not really consciously, not like I sat down and said, today it's those stoic middle people I'm working <laughs> on. You know, one like that you find the stories? The stories have come from all sorts of things. Some of them have come from maybe a turn of phrase maybe that somebody has used. You know, I remember somebody describing a guy as, oh, he's the sort of person who put a bob on himself both ways. That he put a bet on himself. <laughs> that was just something that stayed with me and developed into a character. Sometimes it might be a piece of music that I've mm. heard. Say one um, was just thinking about power and thinking about how I could change power relationships three times. Yeah. All sorts of things. Sometimes but as well. It's, but it's interesting you're drawn to those people because yeah. in a way you are those people yeah. I and mean, you're incredibly self-depreciating your book has gotten glowing reviews readers absolutely adore it 
Yeah, you're a teacher still uh, in, in the same school you've been teaching in for quite a long time. You write at your kitchen table. True, you, yeah. You say things like, oh, I, you know, I just don't know, maybe I might be good at writing, so I did this thing. While it's charming and lovely, it's part of the reason why I like you. It also ties into that thing of, of, of women not pushing them forward. If you were, uh, you know, a, a straight white bloke, the chances are you'd be telling me how brilliant you are. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't like people acting the big man. Whether it's men or women, people trying to act as though they are something, I just do not like it. I don't like it that people think it's maybe fake, that sort of faux modesty. It's like, oh, you know, I'm so awful. Oh, but I'm really very good. You know, <laughs> don't really like that either, I suppose. Now, you're going to read something for us. Like, humour is a big part of your work, as is it a big part of Belfast anyway. It's a dark humour, almost out of necessity in, in Belfast. Well, I'm not trying to put humour into these stories, but I'm certainly not trying to avoid it. But I don't know. I don't know if Belfast people have the sort of monopoly on that type of dark humour. I'm not, no, I'm they not don't, sure, no, you but know. But certainly it's something that is quite typical is, yeah. of the place, yeah. Anyway, so Wendy, you're going to read something. So what are you reading from? It's a part of the first section of a story called To Older Jews. And this is set in a beauty salon. I love beauty salons, <laughs> love the treatment. And so this is a woman called Mo, and she is starting to face intimidation from a person within the community who's trying to extort money from her. But at this point, she's just considering her job and a job that she used to do. And it's paramilitaries extorting paramilitaries the money. Paramilitaries extorting money, yeah, okay. yes, yes. Okay, thank you. Mo didn't talk much. All right, Niels, you're facing the person and it's ignorant not to. You have to talk. But people want to keep it light, holidays and work dues and new shops that have opened in the town. Other treatments, people just need you to let them head off to wherever they want as the cotton wool sweeps over them or your hands smooth their skin with cream. Well, there were questions you could ask if you wanted to. Bodies that begged for someone to ask why. What's that all about? That long, thin scar running along the inside of your thigh, lady in the grey cashmere. What caused that? Those arms like a box of after eights. Slit, slit, slit. Why are you doing that? You with your lovely crooked smile. Why are you doing that? The woman with the bruises round her neck, her hand fluttering to conceal them. Jeez, missus, is your fella strangling you? but you don't ask, why would you? Mo had done enough talking, done enough listening. The call centre job she had done at night while getting the beauty qualification had a boss called Eamon, a man from Donegal, in a velvet jacket. The pay was very poor, he told her, below the minimum wage, but for every 30 seconds over 10 minutes you kept people on the phone, you got a bonus. There was a choice, either the sex line or the fortune line. Irish angle on both. Guys getting off talking to Colleen's or women having their future decided by Celtic mystics. The other new girl said, what's with the Irish stuff? I'm not telling some fella I'm Irish when I'm not. You'll just be on the phone, the man from Donegal had said. It'll just be the accent, which for most people, regardless of your own local distinctions, is Irish. But I'm British, she said. I'm from the loyalist community. Eamon had looked thoughtful. No, he said. No, that's just too niche. 
Loyalist psychic readings. <laughs> Loyalist girls wanting to talk to you now. No, my sweetheart, you are Irish to your fingertips. And if you don't like it, then that, and he pointed, is the door. She'd stayed, though, and so had Mo. And what would you say, asked Mo, if you were actually speaking to the fellas? Work away there, keep working away there, and that you finished? <laughs> I'm sure you can manage something better, Mo, he had said, if you want to earn any money. Mo was put on the fortune telling. No knowledge of anything spiritual required, said Eamon. Just keep it sensible and lengthy. If anyone's in severe straits, give them the number of the Samaritans. But only after a while. <laughs> <laughs> And <laughs> the funny thing about that is I have quite a number of friends, blokes, who back in the days when we were all broke and a couple of them are actors, they worked in those sex lines and they would sometimes have to pretend to be women because they earned more as women. And they, they all practiced the voice, they all had a name, and depending on who was calling, they would be Mary or Joe. <laughs> now, um, Dave, I want to come back to you because... One of the things that we talked about here is about, for example, at the moment, the Me Too movement and our own more local ones at the Abbey Theatre and so on and so forth. And, of course, uh, race issues mm -hmm. have become bigger and bigger over the years too. And they've made great strides in many cases. And a lot of that was achieved through changing laws and test cases. And in my own queer case, so that was how we did it all. Um, Travellers haven't, and you are a barrister and, and a solicitor, and it's kind of your area, and you think that that is how you should tackle these things sometimes. No, I, I think the point is interesting, because I mean, obviously in terms of the travel community, there have been advocacy organisations that have been existing yeah. from, I suppose, in the late 1960s and, and 70s, and, and certainly from, from during the 80s and 90s. Uh, when you come to an issue like accommodation or housing, mm -hmm. I mean, there were some strides made towards improvement for travellers yeah. through the courts. And, 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 you know, one of the initial cases which stopped what was common practice in, in many areas for tra when travellers on the roadside have just been moved on willy-nilly without any sort of process. You know, that, that kind of, pro where local authorities either did it directly by hiring security companies to move people on or the Gardaí acted on behalf of the local authority. Mm -hmm. You know, that was challenged yeah. in the early 80s and, and a case that went to the, went to the High Court and went yeah. to the Supreme Court ultimately and, and held that local authorities couldn't continue to move travellers on off public land unless they were providing alternatives. Yeah. And that, that introduced a, a I suppose, changes in, in housing legislation which obliged local authorities to provide halting sites and halting site accommodation or group housing schemes in the 80s, 90s. But then the law changes, you know, and yeah. then you introduce legislation like the trespass legislation mm -hmm. in the early to, um, 2003, which takes that obligation effectively away from local authority to make a provision. Yeah. So now the Gardaí can now just uh, effectively criminalise a way of life in some mm -hmm. respects. So there has been progression and then regression yeah. whereas I think the opposite in terms of, of what you describe as gay rights in the sense that you know, there has been progress in the courts and politicians have reacted to that yeah. by creating positive legislation yes, yeah, but yeah. it's been the opposite with the traveller community mm -hmm. and I think that, that's reflective perhaps of attitudes toward the community and, and a lack of and you said earlier on about travellers not, you know, people not knowing travellers. I mean, that's that's the problem. I actually think mm. it's the opposite. I think people think they're experts on who the traveller community is, and that you know that then suddenly that they're all criminal, and I really have to deal with them that way. Mm. But the point is that there has been 
some progress in the courts, uh, certainly in terms of legislation on equality and access to goods and services. You know, when travellers are recognised within the equality legislation yes. for those purposes. But I think where it really impacts on travellers is in the area of housing and accommodation, and that is not happening, and, and that's creating a crisis, I think. And Carrick Mines, of course, is... But Carrick Mines is, uh, unfortunately, you know, in terms of the incident... You know, there's a you know there's a lack of recognition of why people were living for ten or twelve years in temporary, which became permanent substandard accommodation, mm-hmm. and you know whilst an inquest made certain findings, which the reality of there that that there should never have been in that situation to begin with for so long. You know, you can only make so much progress through the courts and yeah. so much progress through the legislation. There's an aspect of people's attitudes. What's interesting. Because I feel that there's a there's an echo between you know Dean's and Dean's families and yours. I mean, in the sense that I think when your dad arrived, Dean, in the late 70s, he would have been viewed you know, as exotic. And while that is tied up in its mm-hmm. own form of racism and all that, there can also be a kind of a positive benefit to that thing. You know, there was a time in Ireland when all of the black people in Ireland were famous. Because they all ended up on telly, you know, or whatever, because there was only a few. And it's interesting that your father then went to London to a bigger Vietnamese community in order to feel at home. But you didn't. Well, I was about 15 when, when he moved to London, so I was a Dubliner. So it's right to point out the, that idea, I suppose, of the exotic foreigner, which is innocent in itself, but yeah. certainly problematic in its own way. Yeah. I mean... When I was in school, I think I was probably the only kid in the whole school who didn't have two white Irish parents. Mm, yeah. Not just my class, I think maybe the whole school. Nowadays, of course, we're coming into a much more multicultural society. There's a lot more kids growing up who identify now as both their Irish and their people of colour. Yeah. So some of these kind of lasting ideas about people of colour can be a bit damaging, particularly when they're yeah. keen to identify themselves as Irish. Yes, I hear a lot of people get who have you know, born here or moved here to when they were very young, is they get asked, you know, where are you from? And they say, oh, I'm from, from Dublin, I'm from May, I'm from Ireland. So no, well, where, where are you really from? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's innocent enough, but it's almost like acid rain. If you're kind of receiving that every day, it's going to wear away at your, your own sense of identity. And our sense of identity is something that yeah. a lot of people can kind of take for granted. Mm. But now people are, are trying to figure out themselves. Yes. And people can be very dismissive of, you know, of identity politics and all that. But those people mm. are always people who have never had to, question or think about their identity. Like people would often sometimes say to me, why do you gays always have to go on about it? And I say, because, well, because it's a huge and massive part of who I am that colours and touches everything I do and say and like and enjoy and want and everything. The straight person's sexuality does the same to them but because their sexuality blends into the background and every ad for, a, you know, outside the you know, travel agents is a, a man and a woman and every ad, family on the telly with the washing up suds is a straight family and every movie and every story and every book and every person on the street and every couple holding hands. Because you're just blending and you don't notice it. It just is. But if you're constantly thrown into relief against it, you suddenly understand how big a role it plays in your life. Yeah, and politically at the moment when we're just kind of sandwiched in between Trump and Brexit. And I know <laughs> the idea has always been there that we are, are more immune to that form of right-wing thinking because of our history of emigration, which I think is true to an extent. But uh, it's nor is it a kind of a bulletproof defense against yeah. that kind of uh, politics coming in here. Well, because you said at the beginning, you had 200 and whatever Vietnamese will be here, but 
a lot of them, like your father, yeah, moved that, elsewhere. Yeah, that would have been the first batch, and then there were more would have come over after that. So my, my father was the eldest in, in of his brothers and sisters, so he came first, and then my, he, the second eldest followed soon after, and then the whole family ended up coming over. And like my dad kind of escaped Vietnam, if you like. Um, and then escaped Ireland. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of Vietnamese would have got here. They would have been proactive then in trying to legally bring their families over. Yeah. But yeah, a lot, of, a lot of people moved on. Just like a lot of people had family then in America when they moved over. Um, you know, my, my grandparents got here. They were still raising their kids. My, my grandparents were tailors, so they moved to London where because that's where their work was. But so. didn't they go back to Vietnam eventually? They, they're back in Vietnam now, yeah. Mm. A few years ago, it, the Vietnamese government became quite friendly at the idea of people returning. Yeah. So my grandparents moved back, so they live in Saigon now again. And You've only been to Vietnam once, a number of years ago, and what was it like to go to this country that is so much a huge part of your identity? Yeah, it is, it is interesting, I suppose, because you do have two cultures and the Vietnamese are very good, particularly in London, of it's almost a bit like the Cubans in Miami when you've got these kind of communities that are very similar in the way they live their lives. So it wasn't like a super culture shock like that. But uh, yeah, sorry, I mean, I think, I think most of us want to connect, reconnect with our roots or connect with our roots in whatever way we can. So You might be going back for your grandfather's birthday, 80th, is it? Yeah, he's been talking about this for years now. It's next year. So he's been <laughs> he's tried to book me way in advance. So I think he wants the whole family to come over for because his Because like so many other Irish people, I, I've been to Vietnam, but just the once, and it was uh, last year, to do some work at the Department of Foreign Affairs. But it was fascinating. And one of the things that amused me, mm-hmm. that reminded me of Ireland, is um, they have a way around everything. And so, for example, one of the many things we were doing was that I spoke at a festival thing, mm-hmm. but the after-party part at the end of the thing was held in the grounds of the American embassy because technically that's American soil, so nobody can do anything about it. And they weren't allowed to have a parade or a march or anything because you need a license to gather in numbers like that. But you don't need a license to cycle a bicycle. <laughs> so... The parade was just everybody on bicycles, and it was actually the most fun pride parade I've ever been on. It was just bicycles and rickshaws, and, and no officer. We just happened to be going in the same direction <laughs> in our brightly colored clothes, and me dressed as a giant, you know, white lady. Like so, it was just so brilliant and fun. I really thoroughly enjoyed that day. Alma. Yes. I hate saying nice things to Alma because we have a relationship that's based on me slagging her, but Alma's. Well, be very cool, and you wear the coolest clothes and all that stuff. And you have just been to Japan. Uh, but Japan, of course, is my old stomping ground. And I haven't seen you since your fabulous Instagram post, How is Japan? No, it was I did an incredible trip. And it just went for fun yeah. and met amazing people. And I could happily live there. Well, you know, I lived there for four or five years. And I've been back not often enough in the many intervening years. But, uh, the last time was last year. And I just remember how much I love it and why I love it so much. Alma, you are going to play us out with another song, uh, the third single. Yes, which is out now, and I guess. And called The Arrow. <laughs> the Arrow. Yeah, so this one is kind of feminist song. So it's about... Don't say feminist with your head down as if it's a bad thing. This is a feminist song. Yay! (laughs) Um, So it's about the goddess Bridget, who eventually got melded into Saint Bridget, but before that she was the deadly Celtic goddess. I just think if you're a goddess, wouldn't you just change your name? (laughs) Bridget, I know. Sorry to all the Bridgets out there. It's nothing personal. But yeah, she's a warrior and a swordsmith, amazing at navigation, Yeah, this is a song I wrote about two years ago, but it became more resonant for me around the time of repeating the eighth Mm -hmm. 
the kind of strength in gathering mm. and how special that feels. It does feel special, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. Please, Alma, give us the arrow. We travel through the night to meet them there. How I climbed, how I climbed. The damp and the moss and the life that grew there. There's a change in the air you gave us spring. A fire in our heart. You unfolded our wings. It's time to start I can see you in its light And know I'm safe another year Hear you whistle in the night And know I'm safe another year And we moved there And we grew there And we stood shines my heart shines the child of the sun with the will to defy there's a change in the air cause you gave us spring a fire in our heart you unfolded our wings it's time to start I can see you in its light and know I'm safe another year Hear you whisper in the night and know I'm safe another year And we move there And we grew there And we stood there And go together And every Every sword I forge is for you That is it from us for this episode of Fantasocracy. So I'd like to thank uh, all of my guests, of course. Uh, Wendy Erskine, Sinead O'Shea, David Joyce, Dean Van Nguyen, and of course the luxurious Alma Keller. And you can catch up and see clips from tonight's show on Fantasocracy.ie. Talk to you again soon, and thank you all for listening.